Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording from our Rembaum Institute series, The Poetry of Prayer, with Rabbi Joel Rembaum. Good evening. And uh, we're going to talk about the poetry of prayer. And if you looked at the introduction that was posted, uh, the blurb about the, the what we're going to study, we're going to really look at the internal workings of a number of prayers no, and, the, and, and find out what are some of the, shall we say, technical aspects of them that make them poetry. But we also want to understand that it, that being the case, poetry is intended to be a, an interactive process. The, you know, the poem, poets write intentionally, symbolically, and there's meanings that are deeper, that are intimated in the wording that they use. And sometimes it's very clear, sometimes it's not. But it begs us to look and find our interpretations. And that's fine. Okay. Now granted, it's the same thing like if you look at a, you know, you've been in an art museum, right? And there are, you look at some pictures and you walk right by, it doesn't interest you. Then you'll find a, a, a picture that you really are interested in and you can sit there and you look at it. And you try to figure out what is the, what is the artist trying to say, right? And you create your own interpretation of what that is. And that makes that a very meaningful experience for you. In a sense, the, because there is such a strong poetic element in many of the prayers that we say, the whole, I'm, I want to suggest that, that in order to find a deeper meaning in the prayers, Rather than they're, you know, we, we, we start, to, we approach them sometimes at a, like rote. We read it because we're supposed to say it. And you know, some of us daven fast, so we bomb right through them. Okay. Because we got to say it. But really many of these prayers are begging us to stop and pay attention to some of the beautiful expressions, hidden meanings that exist. And the fact is, many of the prayers that don't seem to be poems have a lot of poetic elements in them. Now, there are other pr- prayers that you will, as you will see right away when we start, that clearly look poetic. There's, the, the structure is, is clearly poetic, and they are. Okay, so th- I want you to sort of, th- that's the perspective I want you to bring to our studies. Okay, and we're going to talk about these, and I want you to be comfortable in saying, I find this, 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 this expression really interests me because, or I find this to be really disturbing. That's okay. Or this is boring. I hope the class isn't, but the poem, whatever we're reading, it doesn't interest me, you know, but it's there, you know. All right. So when you say it, sure, either you'll skip it or you'll, you know, say it fast and be done with it. I don't care. There's no, uh, nobody is going to give you a piety test in the course of this, this course, right? I want to just see if I can get everybody here to think about prayer in a different way, in, in a more, in a more, I want to say not just artistic, but art, art leading to spiritual connectedness. Okay. Look at it that way. Okay. Okay. And obviously one other thing. 
clearly there's a major difference between reading a Shakespearean sonnet and, you know, or looking at a Chagall painting and saying prayer because prayer is sacred. This is a worship experience, right? It's not just sitting in the museum. And so that's, you got to keep that in mind. And that's, that's, that's a premise that I assume we all understand. And I'm not going to define for you your own spirituality. That's your, your business, not mine. Although you can express it tonight or next week or whatever, that's fine. Okay. So, I mean, these are the kinds of things that I had in mind when I, uh, you know, when I thought about what we wanted to do. All right. So tonight we're using the Machzor because there are certain elements that will pop up that will be unique to the high holidays. But the bulk of what we're going to look at is are things we say all the time that are in the Machzor. And I'm doing this intentionally because there are some people who don't come to shul on Shabbos regularly or on the Chagim on the other holidays. And they assume that what they're doing on the high holidays is all special to the high holidays. It's not the case. The vast majority of the prayers uh, are said constantly. Okay, yeah, there are special parts of the service that are dedicated totally, but even those special parts contain elements that are regularly, I'm thinking of the Musaf prayers that we say on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the additional prayer that we say after Torah reading and after Haftarah, after the sermon, okay, later in the last part of the service. The framework of that is regular. The first three and last three blessings we say all the time. Okay, the stuff in the middle is different, and there are certain additions, you know, at the beginning, at the end as well, and throughout. But the point is, the basic structure is the same. So there's a lot of constancy, and and it's not just on the high holidays. Okay, so that's that's why I intentionally chose things that are um, that are embedded within the high holiday maxor, but not necessarily unique to it. Okay. Now, so if honestly, I'll say from the beginning, if you, if you think, if you came, if you, knowing that the machzor is our source, if you came to specifically focus on those prayers that are only done unique to the high holidays, no, this is not a class in uh, high holiday liturgy. This is the class in prayer, period. Okay. That's the point. It's a class in dealing with prayer. All right. Uh, we're going to begin tonight looking at a frame, a frame on one end and on the other end of a significant part of the service that most people, for which most people are not in shul. But you should know it's there. The early part of the service, you know, the early parts of the morning service. First, we have some random different blessings that are put together and some readings from different texts, the different rabbinic texts. It's a warm-up to a warm-up. The major warm-up is, is what we call Tzuki de Zimra. Okay, literally it means passages of song or music. Okay, and what they are, it's everything in Tzuki de Zimra, all the texts within, with the exception of the beginning and the end, are not rabbinic. The rabbis didn't write them. They're biblical. And the bulk of them are Psalms. All right. The bulk of them are Psalms. 80, 90%, depending upon, uh, what day of the, of the week it is. Okay. All right. So now 
that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the frame because there are two blessings, prayers, bless with, with blessings at the beginning and at the end. Okay. Can somebody tell me what is the name of the prayer at the beginning, the, the beginning frame? Oh, Psuke Vizimra. A lot of people here I see know it. What is it? It is. Baruch Shemar. What? Baruch Shemar, Vayolam. That's right. Baruch Shemar. That's the beginning, right? Okay. And what is the first word of the final blessing? All right. Alan Brody said it. I didn't mean. Okay. You can unmute. You can unmute to say it. Go ahead, Alan. Uh, that's all right. Yishtabach. Yishtabach Shemar. Right. Okay. So those are the, that's the frame. Those blessings, those prayers are the frame that, that sets up the Psuke de Zimra. Okay. All right. Now, in doing that, what is happening liturgically? Why do you, do you know of any other Remember, you've got, let, let's say what it is, the, a, a rabbinically written prayer at the beginning, a rabbinically written prayer at the end, with Bible sources, Bible sources, um, that are, where's Tybal? Where are you? Okay, Tybal, go ahead. You have, May what, I what, ask? I, I could be wrong. Uh, I could be wrong, but I thought part of the frame somehow was Nishmat. No, that's, you will get to that. Yeah, I'm talking, that's, that's, that's at the end. It is. But it's not the final blessing. Yishtabach is the final blessing. You're right in the sense it is the, 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 I'll get to that. All right. Stick with me. All right. That's not right. That's not tonight. Okay. Anyway, the, um, so when you take, I'm sorry, but my question was going to be, you have a blessing here, a blessing there that's rabbinically written with biblical material in the middle. Can you think of other pieces of the Sidur where you have that same structure? You may unmute to answer. The Amidah. What is the beginning and the end and what's biblical in the middle? Uh, biblical in the middle? Yeah, of the Amidah. The whole thing is rabbinic prayer, right? Except you have the, the on, on Musaf, you have the, uh, yeah, the, but, but the major, but that small percentage of it, right? There is biblical material there, yeah. right? But I'm thinking where. Rab, Rabbi, is this too obvious that the Torah reading itself? Yes, it's the Torah reading. Think about Torah reading. Exactly. Every Aliyah, when the Torah is read, right? What happens to each aliyah? It begins with? A blessing. It ends with? A blessing. Right. Think of another instance where you have scripture surrounded by blessings. Yes. The, the Shema. The Shema. We'll get to that. You're absolutely right. Bingo. Absolutely correct. And there's others. How about a haftarah? Right? Okay, so when you do that, what are you doing? It's the same thing with Suke de Zimra. Baruch Shemar and Yishtabach and some additional other stuff. 
as Tybal had mentioned. All right, but the point is, what is it? What's the process? What is happening here? Why does that structure exist? Well, it's human beings embracing the word of God on both sides. Good. We are embracing the word of God. Putting or hugging it, as it were. Hugging it. But what are we exactly? But what are we doing with respect to God? What are we doing? In addition to hugging it, we are using that to do what? Praise him. Plus, plus. Yes. Praise him. Right. Praise him. We're praying to him. We're thanking him. Right. We're praising him. Right. So it's a we're we're sending it back up. That's called worship, right? Okay. So for example, if you get up late in the morning and it's too late to say the shacharit service, can you still say the three paragraphs of the Shema? Of course you can, but it counts for what? Prayer, worship? No. It counts as limud Torah, studying Torah. It's another mitzvah. You're right. You always get a mitzvah for studying Torah, but it's not worship, according to the rabbis. Okay. So basically to, to, to summarize then, where you have this structure of blessing at the beginning, blessing at the end, biblical sources in the middle, you're taking biblical sources and converting them into a form of worship of God. And this creates the prayers that that have taken the place of the sacrifices, okay, and that's that's part of the process. So this is this is what we're going to be looking at tonight, okay. The blessing, the frame that takes text of the Bible, the Word of God, and basically uses that. And basically, well, you know what we heard before is yes, we are reading the we're accepting, we're wrapping our arms around the Word of God, sending that that image of us. Hugging God back up to God and saying, we love you. That's what this is about. Okay. All right. Open your mocks or please to page 47. I'm using the Lev Shalem, as I told you. And so hopefully you all have it. Can you identify the prayer? Because some of us don't have the Lev Shalem in front of us. Baruch Shemar. Okay. But while you're but on that page, what I want to do is to um, call your attention to the comment. And I, I'm, I'm here trying to also call your attention to one of the nice features of our Sidur and Makzor, the Leif Shalem series, are all of these interpreted interpretive comments. And if you look at the long comment <clears throat> On the right-hand column, it says, Psuke de Zimra, Psuke, verses of song. Okay, so it explains it, and it tells us that when when this was actually integrated into the prayer service, it probably was integrated in the early Middle Ages um, when it became fixed. There is a tradition in the Talmud that actually before the it became part of the Sidur, according to this tradition. The Hasidim HaRishonim, the early pious Jews, would gather in the synagogue and recite the Psalms. And eventually what happened was that was integrated formally into the, into the synagogue service over the centuries. 
So we're in the, it began in the Gaonic period. I always tell people with respect to prayer, if somebody asks you, when was this prayer written? If you say during the period of the Gaonim, you're safe. That's about 650 to 1100 of the common era. Okay. Can't go wrong. Now there are references to things as you're going to hear in a minute that, you know, existed before that, but the texts, we don't know. Unfortunately, nowhere in the Talmud or in, in the early Midrashim do we have, or any Midrashim, a complete layout of the service that we find later on in the Middle Ages. Okay, so we don't know when all this really began. Anyhow, <clears throat> so so the so the psuke desirma, it's warm up, it's spiritual warm up before the heavy duty exercise. That's what this is all about. It's got it? Spiritual warm up. Okay. Now, <clears throat> if you look at the Baruch Amar, before we before I analyze the, the we're going to look at the structure in a minute. The, we know that there was, there is a midrashic source that actually refers to this briefly. It's called the, uh, Seder Eliyahu Zuta. How many people here have read the Seder Eliyahu Zuta? I didn't think so. Frankly, I haven't read it either. There are a gazillion books on, of midrashic compilations. This is one. But here's what it says. Baruch she'amar v'hayah ha'olam baruch hu. Baruch oseh ma'asev reshit. Baruch omer v'yoseh. Baruch gozerum kayim. And then it goes off. This, this Midrash clearly is aware of or maybe influenced the creation of the prayer. We don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg. Okay. But this is the first reference we have. And the problem is you're going to say, well, when was the Midrash written? Good question, right? Well, the scholarly community is very clear on that. It was written somewhere between the 3rd and the 10th century. Okay? Does that answer your question? No. All right. So be it. Most of the, the tendency is toward the later end of that, because that's usually when a lot of things were really being written out. But we don't know. All right. Now, let's look at that prayer. Look at it in the Hebrew. Look at it in the English. All right. Just look it over. Okay. Read it quickly to yourself and take a note of how it's put together. Okay. All right. I must tell you something. The English distorts the plain meaning of the Hebrew. Okay, the English, the translation into the English attempts to give it some variety. The fact of the matter is, if you just, whether you can understand Hebrew or not, look at the Hebrew. Every single line begins with what word? Baruch. Baruch. Over and over and over again. Okay, so it's totally repetitive. And if you look, I mean, the, the add-on at the end, and again, the, the there are different versions of that. Um, the Baruch Hu, okay, if you look at the English transliteration or the Hebrew, the response is Baruch Hu followed by Baruch Shemo. Baruch Hu, Baruch Shemo, okay? 
Baruch Hu Baruch Shemo is what we say when we hear a blessing, right? Baruch Hashem Baruch Hu Baruch Shemo, right? That's what this is, okay? Now, the there are varying traditions as to how frequently you say that. The Arts Machzor and our Sidur Leif Shalem have cho- has chosen the complete one. Okay, all right. But notice the Baruch. Now, something else. I got to read to you the Hebrew here. All right, because you got to listen to something. Poets write with certain rhythms. Okay, and sounds. All right. So listen carefully. Baruch Sha'amar Bahayaha Olam. Okay, let's play. Let's play the game. You answer. All right. Answer the way it's written in the Machzor. Okay. Baruch Sha'amar Bahayaha Olam. Baruch Baruch Osev Reshit. Baruch Omer Vyoseh. Baruch Baruch Gozerum Kayem. Baruch Merachem Al Haaretz. Baruch Merachem Al Habriot. Baruch Meshalem Sachatov Li Rayab. Baruch Haila Adbe Kayam Lanetzach. Baruch Shemal. Baruch All right, so first of all, you have the, you have Baruch Oseb Reshit, Baruch Omer Beoseh, Baruch Gozerum Kayem. Three lines, three words. Then you have Baruch Merachem al Haaretz, Baruch Merachem al Habriot, four words. Then you have Baruch Mashalem Sachatov Le Rayav, five words. Baruch Haila Adva Kayam Netzach, five words. And then it concludes Baruch Podeomatziel, three words. There's a structure. Okay, it's repetitive. Okay, that's part of the style of prayer that evolved over time. Bart, uh, isn't there isn't there a, a form of poetry that repeats the same idea but differently on successive lines? Because the pairs of lines that you read, each one of the, those pairs deal with the same issue. I think that so can go any way you want. Yeah. Yes, it can go any way you want. Absolutely. Okay. But this notion of repetitiveness, which some people find boring, <laughs> right? Because, oh, it's the same old, same old, you know, there's, there's a reason behind it. All right. What might that reason be? To remember it? Huh? To remember it? Because they didn't have before they had prayer books? What? Memorization is a very good answer. Right. Remember, for many, many centuries, there were no Sidurim. Right. What else? Other kinds of, uh, I mean, it's related to memory, but if it becomes like a chant and movement or music or a musical-like cadence go along with it, it then gets encoded. And I think the rabbis would have understood, and maybe not in this language, it, it, it is a more robust it gives more robust significance, so then gives more meaning when you experience it. Excellent. I agree. Absolutely. And we're going to see that this is something that pops up frequently um, in the prayers that we're going to look at, which are the very foundational prayers of a lot of the, of the basic structure of the prayer book. Okay, that's right. 
and it's repetition is often done in the in the in the Bible and in rabbinic sources for purposes of emphasis, saying this is really significant, right? This is huge. Okay, all right. Now, I want to pause for a moment here and take you to some other pages in the Machsor where you will find something very interesting. Open up to page 56. Um, can you please just say the title of the first oh, word? Because I'm on Sim Shalom. 136 in Psuke de Zimra. Um, this is Hodul Hashem Kitov Kili Olam Chazdo. Okay? It's toward the, it's a few ver- Psalms before the Ashray. So it's 58 on Sim Shalom, whoever has it. Uh, you have Sidur Sim Shalom? Yes, that's what I have at home. Yeah. So I'm just writing it in the chat, the page for others. Oh, okay. Cause I, I don't have that memorized. No, that's okay. Yo, I, I have it. That's what I have. Oh, it's oh. hard to show you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I see. I got it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I have from my son's bar mitzvah. So. Okay. All right, but you see it, look at it, just look at it. And this is the way it is in the prayer book is exactly the way it is in the Bible. This is not like the rabbis, you know, adding in words like with the bar, with the Baruch Hu, Baruch Shemo, with Baruch Shemar. This is how it is in the Bible. Okay. And look at it. It's the same, it's the same concept. So the paradigm for this is not necessarily rabbinic. Paradigm is biblical. And this is a psalm that's 2,500 years old, predates the rabbis by at least 500 years, maybe more. So this is an old technique. Was this said responsively? Yeah, well, they would, yeah, they would answer. The intention would be. The Kile Alam was the congregation. was a response. Yes, absolutely. Sure. Yes. No question. All right. And, and this was not necessarily done. Uh, I, we have no idea how this was done. I mean, these were, these were not necessarily Psalms that people said that there were choral, there were, there were Levitical choirs that sang in the temple. And this is the kind of a prayer they would probably sing. And the question is, it's possible that this was one of those prayers where the choir would sing the first part and the people gathered round. This was not for synagogue worship. This was written at a time before synagogues existed. It's part of the worship that accompanied whatever that was on special occasions, this sacrificial cult in the temple. So you can see how, how, how ancient this form of expression is. Okay. Now, uh, so jump ahead a few pages to Psalm 93. This is the Psalm. You'll find it after Mizmor Shir Leoma Shabbat, right? That's Psalm 92, the song for Shabbat. And the prayer after it is Adonai Malach Lamalach Lavesh. Okay. And you'll look there too. You will see some repetition. So when the rabbis pick up this motif, it's not something that they invented. It was, so to speak, invented centuries before they ever existed. And it, it, it's for the same reason, the reasons that were given, whatever they might be. Okay, so here you have it then with with the but now now I want to look at Baruch Shemar because you're going to find some very we talked about the number of words in each of the phrases, right? 
and it seems as if there is a pattern, right? It's, it's, it was, begins with four, well, Baruch Shamar Baha'i Olam. Praise be God who spoke and the world came into being, right? Then it has the different elements uh, of creation that this, or the process, so to speak, that flowed from that moment in time. All right. And, and so each one, each statement has a different number of words associated with it. And similarly, what's also interesting is that you, the, if with the Baruchs that were, it may have been an add-on or it may have been original, we don't know. Uh, the same there, there are nine Baruchs, right? And, and ten, and ten Baruchs, including the, the extra one at the end in this version of it. So the point is, this is, but what I find interesting here, there, there is one, there are two lines here, two statements that don't seem, or three, okay? That don't seem to fit in with the process of creation. There are more actually. There are more than, but there are two in particular that just seem to have no association at all with, um, creation. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what they are. It says, Baruch Marachem al Haaretz. Baruch Marachem al Habriot. Praise be God who had, has compassion over the land. Praise be God who has compassion over all of his creatures, for his creatures. What is it doing there? Isn't it giving purpose to creation? It's adding compassion to it. That it's not just a blind creation of stuff, but there's, some kind of a meaning to it. Good. That's a that's a very good point. There's meaning here. In other words, that's right. We don't know why God created. The Bible doesn't tell us, does it? He did it, right? One could argue it probably would have been better for him not to have created human beings, right? Read the Bible, right? From chapter three of Genesis until the very end of the Bible. How do we human beings come across? Not well. Mixed. I'll say mixed, right? Great potential, but not always achieving that potential. And sometimes, right, tripping over our own mistakes, whatever. Okay. We were sometimes gives God, we, we can be a big headache. Okay. That's a different subject. But the fact of the matter is what this is saying is that the act of creation itself and the creation of the creatures was an act of compassion because it it brought them into existence and gave them the the potential to have an amazing partnership with God and to have a, a very meaningful form of existence. So it's the, and it's really interesting when the rabbis were developing Judaism, they actually encountered a form of criti- criticism that argued the exact opposite. That there was a, do you ever hear of dualism? So th- there were dualistic movements that created a radical differentiation between the realm of the spirit and the realm of matter, material. And in their eyes, it was the spiritual realm that should be that which people seek because the material realm is fraught with all kinds of bad stuff. And there were state, there were movements that literally sought to totally move away from the material 
and focus their lives on the spiritual. Okay. Now this was influenced to a certain degree by Greek thinking, but it, but it really took hold. Okay, Bert. This is very different from original sin. Yes. And it's very different from the Buddhist idea that all of life is suffering and we were created basically to suffer. It's a different vision of why we're here. Exactly. It is. Right. And and the point is that the rabbis were reacting to that. Yeah. That wasn't the only thing to which they were reacting, but it was a major issue because these people, these were Jews, by the way. These were groups within the, this, I'm thinking this emerges in the first and second and third centuries of the common era. Okay. And these Jews were saying the Torah is worthless. It's meaningless because it deals with the material world. Mm. The rabbis responded to them by saying, you're absolutely right, because the material world is a world that is filled with all kinds of wonderful things that God has given us. And by showing our appreciation to God and appreciating all these gifts, it strengthens our spiritual relationship with God. Right? Remember, any of you who were in shul when my grandson Noah had his bar mitzvah, how many blessings is a Jew supposed to say every day? One hundred. A hundred blessings. Josh threatened us. I'm sorry, not Josh. Noah threatened us by repeating all of them. But he didn't. But he had the list. Anyway. Um, okay. The whole point is we're supposed to look at the world of material things as a source of infinite blessing and wonder. And the rabbis created that emphasis. This this is this act of love and compassion. Okay, later on, we're going to look at the, the prayer, with great love, God has loved us. Okay, so what did God do as an expression of, of great love that's embedded within that prayer? What was God's gift to us that was a gift of love? Torah. Torah, exactly. Torah wasn't given out of hate or anger, right? Or to make life difficult. Paul, you know, the disciple of Jesus said, the Torah made me a sinner, right? Because it had all these things you're not supposed to do that I do. Okay. So that, I mean, he was Jewish. He knew these things, but of course he had a whole different take on it. That's fine. That was his opinion. But that's where the original sin thing comes into play. Okay. So, I mean, the point is this notion of compassion. And I'm saying this now because it's going to pop up again and again. And you wonder, why is it compassionate there? Why was creation a compassionate act? Okay. We don't think of it that way. I mean, especially in secular world, right? We think of, you know, the Big Bang. Okay. Whatever that was. And, and we break it down into all kinds of processes that go along. And there's no value given to that. Okay, that's what science is supposed to do. Okay, God bless science. I like science. Okay, but at the same time, the tradition says it was an amazing thing. An amazing God did that. And we should be appreciative of that. So we say 100 blessings. Okay, I suggest that that's why it was there. But there's also some other hints of some other things here. What does it mean when it says, Mishalem Sachar Tovli Rayab? 
that God God gives gives a very uh, a good reward to those who fear Him. What is that saying? God gives a reward to those who fear Him. What's it talking about? Anybody? If you take an alternate translation of Ira as awe, ah, that's the same thing. All right. You've been well, talking. you know, we have the the only thing you have to fear is fear itself. We, I had that. Right. Banged into my head as a kid. The fact is, the verb it means. I know they have the same thing in Hebrew, but in English they're very different. No, it's awe, but but I mean the point is, you have ahavat Hashem, love of God, and yirat Hashem. Okay, because the point is the awe in the sense we're standing before this amazing power. Uh-huh. It's scary, right? And then the rabbis played up played upon that in order to sort of. Make us realize that if you don't do the if you don't follow Torah, that power could be released, uh, uh, you know, released against us. Tybal, hand up. Well, I mean, to me, this is the problematic part because unless there's a some kind of definition that works about reward, because that's the whole question of theodicy. I mean, right. you had said in the beginning that we're supposed to tell you, I think. Boring, boring or what doesn't work. This is not something that works for me at all unless there are other ways to parse reward. But reward doesn't work if you start to get into the world to come because then you have to believe in the world to come. Anyway, to me, this is where it's nice words rather than something that works. Yeah, yeah I, I understand where you're coming from on that. It, it is sort of problematic. I think the... But uh, yes, uh, you, you mentioned theodicy. The concept came into play because clearly it's the answer to the old question, why do bad things happen to good people? Right. And in ancient times, people were seeking clearly defined answers. And so they said, well, the answer is because you may be suffering in this world, but you were, you, you will by because of your faithfulness to God in spite of the suffering, there will be rewards for you in the world to come. That's basically what it was saying. Okay. Yes, I understand exactly that it, it is a problematic statement. Until many moderns today, it's, it's, you know, but there are other, you know, very, they're very pious people who, you know, use that all the time. I mean, I've had pet congregants who, you know, have lost children. And they have religious parent, you know, very pious relatives, you know, and they'll say it's all right. He's with God, you know, whatever. And it's helped us. I be a Titan bicus, as we say. It helps, you know, it doesn't really work. There are others who find it meaningful and comforting. A lot of moderns don't. Yeah. So I mean, isn't it that story of the Bible of uh, the bird, the boy? Going to do a mitzvah with a bird and dying. I'm trying to remember what the story was. It's, it's Elisha Benabuya in the Gemara. Where right. Okay. Yeah, sorry. I think it's I think right. it's in Hagiga. I think it's in Hagiga where he took I the mother I, bird. Yes. Right, and then quit Judaism. Yeah. Well, it's tough, particularly living in a post-Holocaust world. Well, he was he was for us. Elisha Benabuya was pre-Holocaust. He no, left. I just meant for us. It's it's kind of difficult. Yeah, no, I understand. Yeah, no, no, actually, no. He was a disciple of Rabbi who, Rabbi Kiva. Rabbi Yeshua. 
But it was a mitzvah in the Torah that he, that, that he was doing and died. Um, could it be Rabbi Meir? Because there's the one where they were walking on, Shab- uh, on Shabbos and he said, go back, except my ear. I mean, my ear said, anyway. I don't know. I, I don't think Elisha Ben Abuya knew Rabbi Meir. He would be later. Um, anyway, all right. We're getting hung up on details here. But we like to, be- we like to believe that you get rewarded if you do the good stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a nice thing to feel, you know, exactly. Right. I mean, it, it yeah, I, I agree. It, it was an attempt. It's, it's, and it's, it's a long, long history. And uh, that's one aspect that all three of the monotheist, monotheistic religions have, because we cannot, uh, push off the bad stuff on somebody else. Right. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on. Okay, but you can't. We don't. We don't have that option. The, the bad God. We can't say, well, it's the bad God that did that. The good God is going to help us. That's not an option for us. And that, that's already addressed very boldly in the Bible. We'll see. Very boldly. Okay. All right. So we now see that that this is this is a very powerful statement, really. Of, of defining basically various elements within God's character. Okay. And that, that's, that's really what this is laying out. Is it not? Right. He, this is the guy who created look, that line, Baruch Osevre Sheep. What does that mean? Praise be God who made Breshit. It is the second line in the, Present or the past tense? I always thought Baruch Shemar was past tense and Baruch Hashem Reshit is present tense, as in God was and is. Ah, that's a very, he does that all, yes. Wow. No, you're right. It is in the present tense. At least that's how it's, it's not, it's not vocalized with a vav. There's no vav, but there's a cholom. It doesn't say asa. To, To me, that always talks about the living God. What, it's what not just that, back then. What does that express? Anybody know? There's a rabbinic statement. It, is that um, an it's affirmation? Are you raising your hand? Oh, sorry. Wait, stop. Hold it. Hold it. Alan? Uh, unmute, Alan. Where are you? Alan? I see two raised hands. Okay. Michael and Deborah. Wait, hold on. Alan, what were you going to say? Okay. The... The notion is that God renews in goodness each day the act of creation. That's right. So, cre- so creation is an ongoing process yes. uh, that renews itself each day. Right. That's that. I think that's the answer. Bart, Bert, is that what you? I didn't hear what you added to your comment. Wait a minute. Hold the table. Yes. Yeah. Um. At least for me, I always look for references about the affirmation that the foundational narrative is that the world is about words. You know, it's not clay. It's not turtles. It's not whatever, but it's words that make the Jewish worldview. And that's how I read this as a reference back to how important words are. Okay. Well, all of the, well, I, I don't deny that. I don't deny that. Right. That's what we're seeing. Yes, agreed. 
And that's why you got to sometimes spend time. See, if, and again, if I see Deborah, Deborah, I see your hand just a second. Hold on. Um, no, I think it's a good observation because basically that's what we're doing. We're looking at the little words here and trying to see the nuances in them, you know. And I think that's something that you can do even if whether you read the Hebrew or the English. Okay, and I know that not everybody who's here tonight necessarily is comfortable with the Hebrew, but, uh, you know, read the English. There, too, you'll see there are words that the translator uses that, that carry very, you know, certain nuances to them. And that's the point. The, the words are significant. Yes. Okay. Deborah. Well, two things, as you said, always kind of rushing through this and never really, um, two, two things occurred to me that it's possible that all of history is meant to be condensed into the first part of Baruch Shamar here, because it starts with the beginning and it ends with the redemption. And then it says God goes on forever. So even beyond whatever the final redemption is for us. Um, But also this is hitting me very differently through the lens of climate change today, because uh, it, it seems to me that one way you could read, um, Mishalem Sachartov Lirav is people who act um, reverently toward not only God, but the creation. If God is still doing this every day, it must take a bit of work. And we are, one way of being reverent would be to not only enjoy it and live in it, but also realize that it's not, we're not supposed to be gluttons to the extent that we undo the entire work of it. And I think sitting here for at this moment in human history, it's just hitting me very differently reading it tonight. That's a very good point. Yeah, I like that. In other words, the reward is not, it, it doesn't have to be in the world to come. In other words, there's, there's a reward. If you take seriously what God is commanding us, then you can find meaning in this world, and that's a great reward. But also that we're not, we're certainly not supposed to deprive ourselves or not enjoy it, but we're supposed to be cognizant of our appropriate place in it. Yes, that's part, I agree with you, and that's part of adhering to the message that God gives us. Because, I mean, I can make the case that what you're saying that you know human beings were created to take care of the world, right? I mean, you think that when Adam is put in the Garden of Eden, was it that say he's there la right? To work it. In other words, he can till the soil and he can do A, B, C, and D to make sure that the garden is lush and good, all right, and enjoy it. But at the same time, he has to watch it. Care for it. That's the point. And that was the message that God gave him. All right. And that's the message that you're saying. Exactly. And, and I think finding the meaning in that, there again, it goes back to the crossing of the line into the spiritual realm. Because ultimately, if you find the meaning and the beauty in creation, then you think of the creator, you're create, you know, you're 
building a, a bond with God. Okay. And that's the Sahar. Okay. Good. Bert. Uh, I was having a discussion slash debate with a friend of mine a year ago who's a, a scientist and very much believed in the Big Bang. And he could accept deism, which I guess is the idea that God created it all and then walked away. And this to me is a total refutation of that, which is the Jewish refutation. However, this got here, God is in it. And as someone said, God is helping to create the world. And we are partners in that every day, every single day. And it's no accident. We say this every single day. Exactly. Right. That, that's exactly correct. Right. Exactly. Yes. And I think the, the, it, it's interesting because Nothing in Big Bang Theory denies that, because if you realize that, well, well, it's not just Big Bang. If if you study the universe, if you study science, I'm not a scientist. I don't play, claim to be. You know, I'm not. But I read things. I'm sure we all read things. But I, I'm, I'm constantly amazed by the fact that the processes that you can see in atoms and how they work are the same processes that are going on in galaxies billions of light years from here. The same forces, right? There are four forces in the world, right? So I, I view God as being the four, the four, pardon my Star Wars, my uh, Star Wars, <laughs> he's the force, right? If there are four forces, God's the force that created the four forces. Okay, all right, that's my silly private theology. But the point is, it's, it's, it's to me that, that there's a prayer we're not going to read, but it's, it's in every Amidah that we say, the Modim, right? It's the, uh, it's the second to the last blessing. Okay. Thanksgiving. And the Modim prayer said, we thank God for the miracles that happen every day, morning, noon, and night. And that's not crossing the Red Sea. Right. It's the little things that we're talking about. Isn't that what the hundred blessings is supposed to accomplish? Exactly. Exactly. Right. So the point is, so the Sahar then, it's not, it's not world to come. It, I mean, there are those who will say that may be what it was intended to do, but it doesn't have to be read that way. It could be read as what we're talking about. The reward is the sensitivity to appreciate. Okay, and to and to uh understand God's role as being permanent. It is goodness. The fact that it says that God does so in his goodness means that this, the world is basically a good place. It's not evil. The material realm is not evil. It's good. What does God say at the end of every stage of creation, chapter one of Genesis? Oh. It's good. I love it, he says. Yeah, but then, of course, he sort of walks away and he says, the people take charge. I mean, that's that's the first creation story. But that's a different subject. All right. Anyhow. So, all right. Now, but the second paragraph, which is not a poem, okay. However, it does have certain poetic elements in it. All right, so let me give you an example. So this is the this is the blessing phase, right? Because Baruch, by the way, you'll notice the, the that part, the Baruch Shamar part, 
doesn't even mention God by name. It doesn't. It says Baruch Sha'amar, praise be praise be the one who spoke. It doesn't say Hashem. It's really interesting. Why doesn't it say God there? I don't know. Now that the second the blessing, of course, totally balances that out. And I don't know what came first. It's very possible that the blessing, which deals more with the Psalms, with praise, <clears throat> that that was the original part of this. And the first, the poem was added on later. And the add and, and it may have been sort of an abstract statement about God. Everybody knew what, what it's talking about because, because clearly who spoke and the world came into being. There's only one entity, one being where, the, you know, where that happened. And, and by the way, it's very interesting. Speech, going back to what Tybal said before, speech is powerful. Speech created the world. And we know that speech is very powerful. It can be powerful for good. It can be powerful for bad, right? Depending upon what we choose to do with it. But anyway, I think, I think there are, these are two, pro, the products of two separate, uh, sources here. And, uh, I'm glad that he, that they put this in though, because it really very, uh, very interesting. I, I see a hand from the Hermans. Yeah. I, I'm going to look at this because I say it every morning. Um, in a slightly different way. The first part, which is the poetic part, isn't an entire theology, but it's a statement of what it is that the Holy One has done. He's created the earth, he gives compassion, he's he's compassionate to us, and he's capable of saving us. It's based upon that that the second paragraph paragraph tells us that we're going to bless him and we're going to praise him. And as you pointed out at the beginning, this is the prayer that's the, that is at the, at the beginning of the Pasuki de Zimra, which are all the, which are the songs of praise. So the first paragraph, if you will, the poetic part is answering the question, why are we going to praise God? What? And we're going to, and we're going to praise him. And so as poetry, it doesn't have to be a fully fleshed out theology. Right. It only has to, only has to establish uh, in a way that we can then interpret the fundamental reasons why we think he's, that God is deserving of praise. Correct. I agree. I agree. That's why I said I'm glad they were, uh, but I, I think, you know, somebody who writes poetry is not necessarily the same person who's going to write a more didactic kind of a blessing. That's what I'm trying to get across. It could come from another pen. Right, that, you know, but you're right. I, I told, I said myself, I'm very happy that they were put, if they were put together, that whoever was the redactor here, I think they did a good job. Look, it's the same thing with the Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. I mean, if you, you know, modern Bible scholarship will tell us they're two different creation accounts. Why are they there? Because the brilliance of the redactor, who was, I would say, inspired by God to do this, the point was you want to see the full scope of how God operates. Okay. And you, if you just had one and not the other, you'd miss dimensions of God's operating that are present in the total picture. So they are in a sense complementary. They complement each other. 
Okay, so I mean it's the same thing here, really. That type of a of an approach. So putting, you know, we we some of some people are purists, right? But if you're going to have this passage, then you know, take other things that are similar to that passage and put them all together to create a harmonious literary piece. Or you could say, no, the principles are more important than the critical harmony of the literature. Stick in a few things that don't fit or that seem to be different because they are complementary with an, with an E, not an I. Right? They complete the picture. And that's what this is. Yes. But even here though, this word, this, this, so I mean, look, it's, it's a very lovely prayer, lovely. This is a blessing, right? Because you have to remember, we said, the blessing before the structure makes it into worship. So that's the purpose of this blessing. Yes. Very good. And it talks about Shirei David of Decha, right? The songs of David, your servant. With that, we will praise you, right? But then you have, and then so it says, Bishvachot of Bizmirot, with words, with praise and song. Again, a little repetitious. But here, look what it says. We will, we will proclaim your greatness, praise, your praiseworthy, your glory, and, and we'll mention your name. And we will proclaim you king. Okay. So there's a, the, the way these things string together here, these five words that begin with a nun, the nen, the end sound, right? That's a little poetic element. And I think what happened over time is the liturgists who tended to be more focused on creating blessings that defined what, what they were doing at the same time were influenced by poetic nuances because we're going to see it happens all the time. It's not a random thing. And I think, again, it re- because the, the people who put these together realized that poetry, as we said at the outset, contains power within it as a mode of expression that straight narrative does not. And hence, it's not surprising. Okay. But here is the interesting thing. All right. You find Melech, Melech is referred to in this a number of times. God is king. Okay. The first line of the prayer, Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. Right? We all know that. Yes? That is a, a, a kosher prayer. For a blessing to be a kosher blessing, especially if it's at the beginning of a structure, it has to have the theme and it has to have shame and it has to have malchut. Okay? So the, the whole, here, the, 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 the blessing will have definitely the theme, the, the theme of praising God. But you have Baruch Adonai, praised are you Adonai, Eloheinu, name, name, Melech HaOlam, ruler of the world. So there's shame and malchut, the name and kingship. So this is a, you know, what you can call a formulaic usage. That makes it into a proper halachic blessing. Especially the the first blessing, gotta have that. You know that's required. Okay. Then afterwards, you'll see the word Melech will pop up a number of times because clearly what this wants to talk about is that the Creator is the ruler, 
And, and again, at the beginning of, of, of the Psalms that have been chosen to praise God, why do we choose praise God? Because God's the king. God's the ruler. God's the ruler. And that's what this is saying over and over again. Repetition is emphasis. Okay. He makes his point. But look what comes before that, before the emphasis on God. Remember, set aside that first melech as part of the blessing. That's formal. Yeah, that's formal. That's a requirement. What comes afterwards is very, can be flexible. Okay. What comes next? And look again. Ha'av ha'el ha'av ha'rachaman. The God who is the compassionate parent, compassionate father. Ha'av, that his, his essence as the father is mentioned before the emphasis rightfully on his being the ruler. Why does, what's, why? Why does Av pop up here? Ma'inyan Shemitah etzel har Sinai, as they say. What does Shemitah have to do with Mount Sinai? Okay. Alan's going to tell us. Yeah. The, uh, this notion of Avinu Malkenu, our father, our king. It's always done that way because first it's Avinu, it's the parental notion of God's imminence, of God's love for us. Malkenu is God's kingship, his ruling over us and perhaps from, from afar. So it's a sense of, of the God being present as compassionate as the, as the Av and as the ruler, a little more distant as the Melech over us. Right. And what comes first? Always Avinu Malkenu. It's always in that order. Right. Whenever I teach liturgy, I challenge my students, find me a place where it says Malkenu Avinu, where it says King Father. You wouldn't find it. That's just a second. We're going to, later on, we're going to look at the Ahava Rabbah prayer, right? We talked about that already. The Torah is given out of love, right? What's it saying? Avinu ha'av ha'rachaman ha'mrachem, brachem. Avinu ha'av, our father, the father, the compassionate one, who's compassionate, have compassion. Right there. Okay. And later on, it says Avinu Malkemi. Again. Abba first. This goes back to the notion, which some of you have heard me teach, that you'll find in Breshit Rabbah, in interpretation of this, that Rashi really is the guy who gloms on to this. And he says, why is it that Adonai, that Elohim is used in the first account of creation? And Adonai, Adonai Elohim is used in the second account. And using rabbinic tradition, God says Elohim because there's a reference to that word in the Torah that has to do with judgment. So Elohim is God, the ruler, the king, the judge, right? Law, right? Which is necessary. But Rashi says God tried to create the universe using the principle of deen, judgment. And he said it didn't work. Okay, so what did God do, says Rashi? Adonai Elohim. He started over again. And this time, he did not bring forth judgment, but rather he created what I call a cosmic epoxy. Okay, or at least I see your hand just a second. Okay, it's a cosmic epoxy. 
And Rashi says, and he gave precedence to Adonai, which is Adonai, Adonai, El Rafum Bachanun. God, God, who was the merciful, merciful one. Right? Exodus chapter 34. Okay? We say that all the time. So God's principal characteristic or quality is passion and judgment comes second. Okay, and that's already what you see here when it says in Baruch in the blessing, Ha'av, the father. And then all the references to king come later and that sticks out by itself. And it had, and it's associated Harachaman, the compassionate one. So this is that this is rabbinic theology. Oh, say Bert and then Marlise. I was just uh, going to say that I, I can relate very well to the compassion and the father piece. Uh, living in an era where we don't really have kings, <laughs> at least not in, in the traditional sense of kings, the king is more difficult for me. But I think back then when all of this was written and the world was ruled by kings, it made a lot of sense. Uh, there are people today who say, well, we don't have kings, but what we have, we recognize powers in the world. Yeah. And so they look at Melech not so much as a guy up in the sky with a gray beard, but more as a power because it's closer to our vision of the world. I, who knows how Jews will see it a hundred years from now. God willing, there are still Jews, but. Right. No, I, but, but the, 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 the Melech and, but Adonai really means Lord. Uh, that for me was strange. How is it? But that, that shouldn't be used. Oh, okay. I mean, that, that was used because we don't want people to go around trying to pronounce God's name with <laughs> anyway. Right. Okay. But the point is that, that, that name had, again, sacred power to it. Right. So you had, you couldn't even go near it. So therefore you had to find, uh, so I happen to think the best use, the best term for yud heh vav in translation is the eternal. I learned that from Rabbi David Aronson of Blessed Memory. With a capital E. Yes. Because it has within it all forms of the verb hayo, which means to be. Being. It's the eternal being who, who is being. Eternal being. Okay. Anyway, yeah, but I think that's why I like the word the force. I think we should, instead of saying king, we should say the force. And we say, may the force be with you. Yes. Or, or as we heard in the other movie, may the Schwartz be with you. Marlies. Yes. Thank you. Um, I just was going to say when you talk about Abinu Malkenu or, you know, that the God is parent, God is compassionate one comes first. It just makes sense in terms of. We're worshiping. It's we're in relationship with God. We're partners with God. It would just wouldn't make as much sense the other way around. No, I think you're right. And the, and the whole concept of partnership, which is also uh, you know it, it's a concept the rabbis were very much aware of. But they, they, we are shutafim shel Hadonai shel Hashem bivriata olam. We are partners with God in the creation of the world. In other words, with the idea being, I always use the metaphor of, remember the little rings you used to get in, in uh, Cracker Jacks, in the boxes, right? And they were broken, they were split, yeah, so you could spread it apart if you had a thick finger, right? And you still wear it. 
Okay, Every, a lot of us old old fogies remember it. The younger ones may not. Anyway, but but that's that's the whole point. The world was created. The the process. Well, it's, it's what Alan said before. Machadesh. Every day, God continues the process of creation, and we're God's partners in the process. We, we, our job is to 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 bring those two to to close the space and to create the perfect circle, the perfect ring. And and that's the idea. And I think it's easier, not easier, it's more helpful uh, to understand that we do this as a partner where there is a warm and, 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 and uh, you know, com- compassionate, but also giving relationship on both ends when you're a partner with someone, rather than just being the boss. And Melech sounds more like the boss. Now, of course, dealing with the, with the principle of Dean means law has got to also be a powerful thing. And remember, the king was seen as the, as the high court of appeals. That's what God was, the final, the final judge. Okay. So, so they got to keep that in mind as well, that, that the rabbis understood as not really being, uh, a, a, not simply authoritarian. Melech, in, in, from a certain perspective, was also that. But I agree. Melech is a, it's an archaic term, but that's why you gotta, you gotta do a little history, right? And, and, and roll the tape. Well, that's aging me, doesn't it? Wow. <laughs> to scroll back, uh, you know, about 400 years, and then you realize it was still, no, I should say 200 years, right? King, ruler. Right, that was the answer. So that's what, but that's what that is. But yes, redefining it in more contemporary terms would be a good thing. I think that's why people say ruler instead. It's gender free at least, but um, that that may not be whatever. I like the force. May the force be with you. Yes. All right. So finally, okay. So 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 let's just conclude. Uh, we didn't get to Yishtabach. We can do that next week and move on, but that's, that's shorter. But anyhow, um, so this is the beginning, right? This is the beginning technically of the formal service in synagogue. All right. And it really begins with a bang, a big bang. <laughs> and this whole concept of the creator and the various elements that go to make up the divine personality. And the qualities within God are, are laid out here very nicely. And then you have the, the blessing with its affirmative statement that indeed God is the, is, is the force who created all of this. And therefore God is legitimately for all the reasons that are mentioned is legitimately worthy of praise. And so we're going to really lay it on thick. And all the psalms that come afterwards, which are psalms of praise, do that. And it may, it may simply be to remind us as we begin the day, God's there with us. Okay, we're, we're in partnership. We're praising God because, you know, this is the foundation of existence. And that's how we have to begin our day. We may have had a bad night. The day before may have been a miserable day. But we're starting over. New creation, new opportunities, hopefully new hope. And this is, this God wants to get us there.
Teibel, then that's the last comment. Go ahead. Well, it's actually a question. The way you worded it, I started thinking about continuity and discontinuity, as in this is the beginning of the service that requires a minion. But some people might have said blessings on their own at home, and then some people coming into a formal space may have blessed a mezuzah or blessed putting on a talus. And I'm just wondering if you might have anything to say about any connection, home blessings, coming into shul blessings before the formal start of the well, this doesn't, in a minion. This doesn't require a minion. You're called, I mean, the psukit is Oh, not- sure, right, doesn't require a minion, but, but somehow there's something there, because you said formal start of a service. Yeah, it is. Formal start in the sense of the synagogue. The, right, I mean, the, the, the preliminaries to the preliminaries were added on later, okay? But when the rabbis, when the, when the onim came to define the prayer book, I'm, I'm, I'm looking, I'm working from the perspective that it was that early medieval effort to really regularize prayer that that this fell into place, okay? And that's when I said formal part. This is for for all intents and purposes when synagogue formal synagogue prayer really began to take hold, which is not we don't know the degree to which people went to shul during rabbinic during the early Talmudic periods. We don't know, okay? We just don't. But we know, we, we know that, that for people to, to gather in synagogues, you know, and, in fact, by the way, interesting thing is most of the synagogues that are in Eretz Yisrael are from like the fifth and sixth century, which is the latter part of the rabbinic period. Um, but, I mean, but they existed before we know that. But the point is, it's during this time that the, the, the awareness of the regularity and the, the formal functioning of of synagogues became more uh, more normative in the in the religious life of the Jew. Something else you got to keep in mind relevant to that. Urbanization of the Jew took place starting really. I mean, there was a heavy urbanization. That, no, there was urbanization well before uh, the Middle Ages, but it was really the the major push to urbanization took place after the Islamic conquest. Most Jews, remember, lived in areas that were taken over by Islam. Islam, by definition, were not farmers. Was where does it come from? The desert. They were merchants. They were mercantile people. Okay, cities for them were more important to their culture than farming. And so Jews moved into cities because they realized one factor was as the institutions like synagogue, school, town council, people helping, tzedakah, all of these things operated better in a city, in a town, than out in the farmlands. Right? Eretz Yisrael was a farming, an agrarian society generally, especially in the latter part of the rabbinic period in Eretz Yisrael. Babylonia already had cities. Okay, so the, the switch began to take place there earlier, but it was in the urban setting that the synagogue really came into its own. And that was only from the middle, the, the early Middle Ages down. Okay, so going back to, to Tybal's question, so I'm saying that that was, this was the point 
where the synagogue service began. And at some point later on, they threw in the, all the stuff beforehand. You read the Talmud, the Birkot HaShachar, those blessings that we say, the 15 blessings that we say right at the very, very beginning of the service, that was said at home when you got dressed. When you woke up in the morning, the rabbis, it's in the Talmud. You woke up in the morning, you said this blessing, this blessing, this blessing. But eventually they brought it into the synagogue because everything else came into the synagogue. Okay? All right. So, um, yeah, but I think that getting back now, Taibul, getting back to your question, um, the notion of, of taking time to, you know, put yourself into a mood of thoughtful worship, I think takes time. And it, and it's, it's, it, it takes a certain amount of focus. That's what this is supposed to be about. Okay. And the, it took on more gravitas once it was structured. And once the, you know, people began to look at it as, as a source of a, of a great deal of spiritual power. But the, the fact is somehow I would say before one, one begins to really engage in, in the prayer in the synagogue, whether it happens in the synagogue itself or whether it happens Privately, it's important. I'm, let's tell you just personally. I, I, you know, I walk to shul from Century City. It takes me a while. And on Shabbos morning, I'm not going to get up early enough so that I get there at the beginning of the service. I want to sleep in a little. I'll be honest with you. After 25 years of getting up early to be the first one in shul, you know, I'm entitled. Okay. So I will accept my entitlement. All right. But when I begin, when I walk in, even though it's late and everything, I start with elements from, I begin with Baruch Shemar and, and select a few Psalms and, you know, selectively go through parts of the Birka, the Zimra and conclude with Nishmat Kol Chai and all the rest of the conclusion. Because I need to give myself time to focus. And it helps. It just, you know, reorients me. So that's what it was for. And I think it's a valid thing. But you can do it at home. I mean, you know, uh, there have been times when I've done Pesuke de Zimra walking to shul. I mean, because I know a lot of the Psalms by heart. You know, so I would do that. And I got to shul and I felt, gee, I'm ready to go. Sometimes I don't. But, you know. That's me. All right. Next time we'll do Yishtabach, and then we will move on from there to uh, the, we'll take a step back and look at the, uh, the final component of the ending frame. In other words, we're going to look at the frame of the frame next. Then we're going to roll back, uh, scroll back a few pages to the area right before that, because there you're going to really see, and it, well, you'll see some of this in Yishtabach, but if you, there you're really going to see these, this powerful influence that the force of poetry had within these, these prayers. But the important thing is again, now that you see based on our conversation, a lot of different perspectives have been drawn out of these few lines, and that's good. I mean, that's the point. Everybody is going to find a different nuance. And, you know, I would say, fine, find a nuance, make it yours. Great.
Kaddish Baruch is going to be happy. All right. Please, God, I shall see you next week. And as we say, Godspeed and over the fast. Tisha B'Av is upon us. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.